The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Welcome. Today, we're talking about the challenges facing endangered life from sea to shining sea (laughs) and the emerging sea party that seeks to stop offshore drilling uh, during the election year. And my guest today is David Elbarg, and I have to thank him for writing me that twisted uh, sentence I just had to read there. Uh, I feel like I'm selling seashells by the seashore. How are you, Dave? Good job. I'm doing well. (laughs) Tell us again what we're going to talk about today. (laughs) Um, Well, let's... You know, it's it's life at risk and, and some signs of hope, but uh, definitely yeah. the, uh, you know, the, the ocean's still in crisis and uh, more people are discovering this and hopefully we reach the point where we have enough uh, since, you know, it's kind of like we're in the sixth extinction crisis and the last one was when a meteor destroyed the dinosaurs 60 million years ago, only this time we're the meteor. So um, as soon as we figure out the impacts we're having on this very complex web of life on our planet, we may decide to do something uh, um, to protect and restore uh, this tapestry and, and come to the realization that, uh, as Tim Worth said years ago, uh, that, that our economy is a fully owned subsidiary of our environment and that if we uh, kill off the oceans that generate half the oxygen we breathe, um, we're not going to invent a machine to, to replace uh, the air and the water and all the uh, services that are provided by this complex of life, ranging from uh, baby glass eels in Maine to uh, to a carnivorous caterpillar that I encountered last week, 7,000 feet up the side of a Hawaiian volcano. Wow. Well, before we go into those wonderful tales, I do like your analogy of we're the meteor striking the earth because we certainly are pummeling, you know, in many ways, our natural resources and our homes and our economy, um, all with these environmental attacks. Um, David, it's great to have you back on the phone, and um, you and I go way back, but I should do a better introduction of you. Um, so, well, well, actually, I'll let you do a better introduction. Tell us again the name of your organization. Uh, well, I, I founded a group called Blue Frontier. It's uh, our new, newly revised website is www.bluefront.org. And uh, Blue Frontier is essentially, it's been around 11 years now. It's uh, 
It's an example of, as all good environmentalists do, it's recycling. I wrote my first ocean book, which was called Blue Frontier, Saving America's Living Seas, and it uh, came out in 2001. Ralph Nader read it and convinced me to uh, start an organization based on the final chapter called the Seaweed Rebellion, seaweed being marine grassroots. And, and our function for the last, geez, almost 12 years has been essentially to act as an honest broker to try and bring us uh, sort a of 1,500-plus seaweed groups and, and conservation stakeholders together um, so that that marine activists and ports and the Coast Guard and, and the maritime industry and uh, fishermen and uh, coastal residents, surfers, all the people who get so much from the ocean in terms of, you know, recreation, transportation, trade, energy, protein, just that sense of awe and wonder, um, might work more effectively to give something back to uh, restore and protect the blue in our red, white, and blue. So, so we do a lot of uh, projects that try and bring people together to be a more effective voice for the ocean. And um, at the same time, I continue to write about the ocean, and we have books like 50 Ways to Save the Ocean that's illustrated by Jim Toomey, the Sherman's Lagoon cartoonist and one of our board members, and uh, the Golden Shore about California as a model for living well by the sea and the coast, and then my most recent Save by the Sea, uh, Hope, Heartbreak, and Wonder in the Blue World, which is, I think, what we talked about last time we talked. That's right. But it's a wonderful autobiography that uh, says a bit about your past as a journalism a journalist and also uh, what, a war correspondent? I kind of go that far? I mean, you've seen some, uh, not only environmental degradation, you've seen some pretty fierce stuff. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and, and this is sort of, I've decided, and, you know, that, that this is our new war now is, is you know, I've, I've been to Northern Ireland and saw the massacres in Central America and, and you know, been in places where there have been coups and then, in an occupied embassy held by terrorists and, uh, and, you know, and, and, and sort of, I, you know, I've seen body dumps and I've seen dead coral. And the, the reality is, you know, what I learned in some of these years and some of these war zones is that there's a direct link between, uh, you know, war and environmental degradation and, uh, and inequality of, of, uh, power and wealth and, and and it really it's it it comes down to um, we may always have wars we may not always have living seas but the reality is we're not going to be able to deal with either of them until we take a what I call a triple bottom line approach we have to link the environment with the economy with equity I mean we have have to have a fair distribution of resources and a recognition that resources are limited and we can't you know. Um, continue to go on wasting them to, to you know, right. burn, burn. Right. One of my, my favorite books, George, yeah. you didn't mention your, one of my favorite books is The Rescue Warriors. So you've taken the warrior theme to another group of people. Tell us about that. Yeah, Rescue Warriors, the U.S. Coast Guard, America's Forgotten Heroes. And, and in fact, at our, our, in May, you were there at our last Blue Vision Summit where we brought activists together and, and had them addressed by some of the leading ocean figures, including uh, 
this May, uh, Admiral Paul Zunfeld, who's the commandant of the Coast Guard. Uh, I mean, at some levels, I feel like for 3,000 years, what we've done is we've taken our young men and we've sent them off to fight and kill other young men, and those who survive come back to become our tribal and national leaders. But the reality today is... is uh, it's no longer just about, you know, other guys with guns. You know, the, the challenges we face are, uh, you know, industrial accidents and uh, stateless uh, groups of terrorists and organized crime and, uh, and uh, as I say, industrial and, and natural disaster and the, the sort of cumulative disasters of human-enhanced climate change and, and, and this unknowable range of, of threats, both cyber and real uh, require a, an ability to respond uh, really on a planet that's two-thirds salt water, and that's that's what the Coast Guard's trained for, to respond to a range of threats, from, be they law enforcement or search and rescue. Um, and, and so I, I got this past spring, I got to address the North Pacific Forum, which was the leadership of uh, not only the U.S. Coast Guard, but the Coast Guards of, of Canada, Japan, Korea, Russia, and China, and out in the Pacific, uh, these countries that aren't always cooperating, uh, they're cooperating to go after pirate fishermen who are who are stealing common resources and stripping the seas, and they're cooperating to go after uh, other forms of, of pirate pirate activity. And and it really is, you know, the oceans are this um, that cover two thirds of our planet, and they're fairly lawless territories and uh, and, and non territories. I mean. These are the places where we're seeing industrial fishing and human trafficking and organized crime kind of overlapping and, uh, you know, the last great anarchy and, and also the last great commons. And, and we have choices to make, whether we uh, collaborate as a species to protect the resources that uh, are essential for our life or whether we let the tapestry of life continue to uh tear apart until we discover that we can no longer uh, live on a on a planet that's just us and a handful of other weedy species, you know, just humans, yeah. Norwegian rats and raccoons is not enough to make a viable planet. Well, it was remarkable the way that the ocean came onto the land for Hurricane Katrina and Superstorm Sandy, and these are Coast Guard accounts of Coasties on the water above streets and houses and, and you know, helping people and that's, uh, rescue people far from... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's really how I got to write the Rescue Warriors book is, is I went down to Katrina um, in 2005 and um, they reminded me of war zones. I mean, there were fewer casualties, about 1,600 uh, killed, but far, which is still tragic, uh, the, the destruction was far more than I'd seen in any war zone. I'd, I traveled, you know, down to Plaquemine Parish and the bayous up through the abandoned, uh, emptied out, hollowed out city of New Orleans and then along the Gulf Coast for 250 miles where it was just devastation from I-10 south, uh, about a two-mile swath of destruction with, uh, you know, trucks and trees and boats on the land and one point traveling with a deputy sheriff, I, you know, we're going through this destruction zone. And I said, you know, there's this white church facing us on the road. I said, well, at least the church survived. And he goes, yeah, but it used to face the other way. Oh, um, my gosh. And, and uh, 
you know, and, and during this, I realized that the Coast Guard was the only part of government that was functioning in those first days, that uh, they saved 33,000 people in the first week before the Department of Defense or FEMA even got their act together. And, and that's because they're used to responding, you know, every hurricane season, they kind of, you know, move their resources out of harm's way and then surge back in. And I, I went in with them at the next hurricane, Hurricane Ike on the Texas coast. And, and I talked to, uh, you know, travel the world on that story to, you know, where they're guarding oil terminals in Iraq, up to Alaska, out to Hawaii, the, the commander of uh, one of their cutters up in Hawaii, I mean, in Alaska, in Kodiak, Alaska. He told me he interviews every young sailor that comes on board, these, you know, 19, 20-year-old girls and boys, essentially. He said, interesting thing he found, a really high percentage, like over 10% of them, their mothers uh, were professional nurses. And he says, so what, what he took away from that was um, that there's that um, nurturing aspect, you know, association with people who are... Yeah. That they want to nurture, but they also want uh, adventure, and and so they they manage. You know, the Coast Guard manages to mix that sense of uh, altruism and 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 adventure, and uh, and and I think that's a model for where we can go to move away from traditional militaries that are just about um, shooting other guys and 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 war profiteering. Of course, I mean the you know one of the that's, closest. That's a great con- point. Yeah, Dave, yeah. those are great points, and. A big example was with the uh, Gulf oil spill. Guess who's first on the scene? It's the Coast Guard, and they're the ones who really got the organizational skills to kind of coordinate the whole pro- cleanup process. And, and again, the former, you know, Thad Allen, who gave one of our Peter Benchley Ocean Awards, the former commandant of the Coast Guard, says we really have to begin looking at how we uh, pre- prevention and uh and preparation, meaning, you know, infrastructures that they're going to have to face increasing uh, extreme weather events, and, and also prevention, which is the new commandant of the Coast Guard says it makes no sense to be drilling in the Arctic. Um, I know in two, 2000, on my first on my Blue Frontier book, I went out with BP in the Gulf on visited a couple of deep uh, deep drilling rigs, and I asked the company man on one of them, I says, what happens if you get a blowout a mile or two down? He says, well, I guess we'll find out when it happens. And uh, 10 years later, it happened with, uh, uh, you know, with, with uh, BP. Gulf oil spill, yeah. Gulf oil spill, and 11 workers killed and the worst oil spill in history. And I was flying over it out of Alabama, 2,000 feet, looking down at 100 dolphins and a humpback whale trapped and dying in the oil. A couple of days later, visiting uh, Port, Fort Jefferson near, near – um, where the hurricane had gone through and, uh, you know, the, the adjacent town was still wrecked five years later and now there are hundreds of oil pelicans. And I talked to uh, local fishermen. You, you, you can see the dying of, of a culture, of the Cajun culture, where after Katrina they moved their families out of, uh, you know, above the, uh, above the canal locks, uh, out of the flood zone and, and yet they continued to fish down there. And then when the BP oil spill, they couldn't uh, fish or, or oyster down there. Uh, shrimp or oyster was like, you know, poisoned by the oil. Oh, yeah. and, and, and now with sea level rise, uh, there are fewer and fewer people. These, these towns like Empire and Boris, which was, uh, you know, not much to begin with, but way less after Katrina. And now is essentially uh, dead after the 
oil pelicans were moved out of town. Um, you know, you're seeing that uh, a Cajun's not really a Cajun if he has to relocate to Baton Rouge. Um, you're seeing the, the fading of the bayous and, and the sea level rise impacting cultures, you know, from Louisiana to, uh, to the South Pacific, where whole island states like uh, Kiribati are washing away, and they expect, you know, you interview uh, President Tong of uh, Kiribati, and I asked him um, before we gave him the Peter Bench Ocean Award, I Ask him, what's the legal status of a submerged nation? And he says, this is what the UN's actually discussing today. Can they retain their, their rights to their exclusive economic zone and their marine resources after sea level rise from fossil fuel-fired climate change literally will drive their population off their islands? And they're now today looking to buy land in Fiji to relocate their population. So we're, you know, we're facing this cascading crisis of you know, on our ocean planet of, of industrial overfishing for the global seafood market, of oil, chemical, plastic, and, and, and nutrient pollution, of uh, loss of coastal habitat, and on top of all that, oil-fired climate change. So so the frustrating yeah. things, yeah, we, we know what the solutions are. We have are, our work cut need... out for us here. And I was listening yeah. to uh, Senator Gary Peters from Michigan, and he is concerned because there's a pipeline from Canada going under the Mackinac Straits. And the pipeline is over 60 years old. And unlike the Gulf of Mexico, they have issues of freezing and ice for three months of the year. And it is freshwater. And apparently the Coast Guard has no experience in dealing with a freshwater oil spill. And they're not sure if the saltwater systems would work at all. There is none of those microbes that they have in the Gulf of Mexico in freshwater systems. Uh, it's and all the sci- A lot of scientists are studying how to abate, you know, spills in saltwater systems, but very few are looking at the freshwater one. And yet, this is something just waiting to happen. And th- furthermore, it's taking Canadian tar sand oil um, to Eastern Canada by way of Michigan. So it, you know, it, it goes under the Mackinac Straits and then it goes back out through Duluth or something. And, and uh, so this is, um, it's all, we, we really have to do a good job of figuring out what's going on, what we've done to this planet, I guess. Or this and it's funny you mention that because you're the second person who, who's really talked to me about this. Um, and, and, and it's agreed, we not only freshwater, but we don't know how to deal with an under ice oil spill, which is, one of the yeah. reasons that uh, they may have forced, um, aside from a dry hole, got shell out of the Arctic, and now is an opportunity to protect the Arctic from uh, uh, the next drilling disaster. In terms of right. Mackinac, in terms of Mackinac, we had um, Margot Pellegrino, who's one of our Blue Frontier adventurers. Uh, she, she's uh, paddled Miami to Maine and Seattle to San Diego to. Re- to con- raise issues of marine protection and connect uh, seaweed activists. And this summer, she did the first leg of a two-part paddle in her one-woman outrigger from New York to New Orleans. This, this past summer, she went from New York to, uh, to Chicago and under, across the Mackinac Straits. And she's you know, working to make connections with local 
recreational paddlers and, and also local activists. And when she hit the Mackinac Straits, of course, this is a, a huge issue for local people who for years have been warning that this pipeline, uh, the rusty old pipeline under, under the water there could rupture and, and threaten, you know, the world's, yeah. the world's great freshwater resource in the Great Lakes. So it's, well, it's, this is it. Margo would know this, that uh, four times, although ten times the current goes through Mackinac and goes over the Niagara Falls. Ten times as much water moves around, and there is no more strategic place. If you were to pour oil into the Great Lakes and want it to thoroughly spread across the Great Lakes, that would be the point of insertion right there. And sure enough, there we got the pipeline. It's really, it's all about water. She's paddling to try and link. She went up the yes. Hudson River, across the Erie Canal, and through the Great Lakes, and next summer down the Mississippi to the Gulf to say, you know, whether you're a river activist or watershed activist, a coastal or ocean activist, it's all, it's all the same flow, you know, the, the, the you know. Yep. Deep well, waters from the deepest ocean rise to the surface and evaporate and, you know, form clouds that go over our mountains and rain out and follow gravity back down from the mountains through the watersheds, the rivers, the lakes, and down into, uh, you know, our estuaries and out across the coral reefs, the sea grasses, and over the seamounts and back down, seven miles down to the deepest, you know, point on our planet, a uh, place where yeah. only three humans have been... Uh, you know, we've sent hundreds of people into uh, space. Only three humans have been at the lowest point of our planet. And then everybody got excited a week or two ago when they discovered water on Mars. Why? It's because it's a sign of life. We've got this whole water planet we live on, and we're not uh, fully exploring it or protecting it. Yeah, I know. That's, yeah, we're going to talk some more about what we can do to uh, protect and to save um, our natural resources and to prevent further offshore oil drilling uh, when we come back after this break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back here with David Helbard from Blue Frontiers. And um, Dave, before we went online, we were talking about, um, you know, how some animals are, we're always trying to get animals listed and recognized as uh, endangered or, you know, to stay current in their situation. You know, some animals are on the brink and some are commanded to be moving a little bit away from the brink. Um, and, and you mentioned a particular um Long, skinny animal. Well, the American eel, which is just uh, the Fish and Wildlife uh, Service, just decided not to list it as an endangered species, um, e- even though its population has crashed about 98% in, since the 1970s, um, even as its values for what they call Elver's baby eels is... Uh, Gone up when I when I wrote about the problem uh, in my first book in 2001. The problem was that they were selling uh, baby eels in America for $300 a pound. Now they're going recently for $2,100 a pound. They ship them to Asia oh. where they grow them out. And and so there's a fishery uh, in South Carolina, a larger one in Maine, that's just pounding them out. And and for some reason we don't think of eels. I mean they have this incredible. Um, yeah, tell us about their life cycle. I mean, they're really ocean animals. Yeah, they're they're like salmon. They have that same kind of you know heroic Homeric journey. They're born in the Sargasso Sea. The elvers or baby eels or start up the East Coast and the you know drifting in the Gulf Stream. And uh, the American species swims into rivers and bays of North America. The Europeans drift on for another year past Greenland, and uh, they're almost extinct as well. Um, Males still stay in saltier water, the estuaries, and then the females go upstream and literally can climb dams or swim across damp ground to get to freshwater ponds where they'll grow out. And, uh, and, and you know, you'll see these uh, tiny eels coming up with them. Um, and these are the ones they're catching, these, you know, the little spot on the dam, there'll be 30 or 40 of these little glass eels. Um, mm. But, you know, the the big females will grow to four to eight pounds and uh, bigger than the males head back downstream. And those that don't get fished out for horseshoe crab uh, with horseshoe crab meat, uh, um, they'll survive and, and meet up with the males in the estuaries and swim back to the Sargasso Sea. And this whole cycle of life continues, only only we feed it down about 99%, 98%. And... Uh, and yet Fish and Wildlife says, well, you know, there's a good distribution of the remaining 1% of eels, and uh, we're still seeing them, so we won't protect them. Um, 
that kind of it's almost typical of fisheries in general where we'll you know we overfish one species like cod and then we'll target another like dogfish and then we'll beat it down 90% and suddenly realize it's crashing and then the regulators come in and start regulating that last 10% as if that were the historic value of the fish or, you know and and uh, yeah i mean i just you know so uh, you know that's that's happening on America's East Coast, and I just came back from uh, 10 days in, in Hawaii. I went there with a, a journalist uh, who was, you know, so it was sort of her work trip, but I was there as a plus one and, and, and got to see oh, what Grover Cleveland called a substantial wrong, you know, when, when the American sugar planters overthrew the government of the Kingdom of Hawaii back in 1893. The president actually tried to reverse that, but uh, he lost the next election, and Hawaii became a state. And in 1959, our 50th state. And today, people go there, and you know, they arrive on the islands. We were, we were on uh, the Big Island in Maui and Oahu, and people arrive on the islands. They think it's a natural paradise, but but biologists and botanists working there think it's a native species holocaust. Uh, you know, Hawaii's lost most of its native plants and animals it's it's it you know before the polynesians arrived it only had two mammals a bat and a seal and the monk seal we got to visit on the big island the a monk seal hospital it's just been there for a year and already it's it's treated seven seven of the critters were there when we were there it's treated 15 which is essentially one percent of the whole monk seal population they're um the caribbean oh, monk I mean, this is, you know, a big charismatic. It's like a sea lion in a seal's body. They're really smart and curious. And um, there were three species of monk seal, and the Caribbean monk seal went extinct, and uh, the, the Mediterranean monk seal's on the verge, as, as are the Hawaiian monk seals, although many people in Hawaii and around the world are working to protect them. Um, along with the birds and, and the bats and uh, the flowers and the trees uh, on the Big Island. We also saw uh, ohia trees, which are the main trees of the natural forest of Hawaii, and yet they're, uh, they've got the ohia wilt. We went out with the University of Hawaii scientists who showed, showed us uh, where they're just dying off in large numbers and being impacted not just by... Um, in this case, a, a fungus, but all sorts of invasives from Puerto Rican kiki frogs that have turned, you know, the most quiet part of the island into a, a, a nightly uh, song fest of little frogs to uh, fire ants and uh, all sorts of, uh, you know, invasive birds and, and, of course, feral cats and mongoose and everything else that's been introduced. Um, the mongoose was introduced to... Uh, take care of, of uh, bugs that were affecting the sugar cane, but it turns out the, the bugs were diurnal and the mongoose were nocturnal, and so nothing worked. Yeah, it was a big mistake. Um, but, you know, and, and that place overrun with feral cats. We were at seven, in a cloud forest at 7,000 feet up, and, of course, because there was only, because there were no predators, a lot of the birds, we saw nene geese that 500,000 years of evolution since some Canada geese were driven by hurricanes over to the most isolated archipelago on Earth, and 
and they're different now. They have these beautiful stripes on their necks, and I, I thought think think they honk a few octave octaves higher than our mainland geese. And there are about twenty five hundred of them left, and uh, they seem to be coming back slowly. Uh, the monk seals, their the pups are dying in northwest Hawaii, but they seem to thrive on the main islands. So right now they're bringing some of the starving pups back to this uh, monk seal hospital. It, in a natural energy lab complex by the Kona Airport on the Big Island, and then there, it's odd. It looks like a CIA interrogation center. It's a big fenced-off yeah. area, um, and because they don't want them to uh, bond with people, so we were literally watching a, a pup seal being force-fed formula from behind a plate glass window. Felt like it was, you know, but but you do what you have to, and. Uh, and as I say, you know, the, the effort is uh, is hopefully they don't understand why in the, the marine monument, the wilderness of northwest Hawaii, the pups are starving and, and being attacked by sharks. But maybe on the main islands, we've taken out so many of the big predators that the, that the monk seals can feed on the cephalopods, the octopus and the lobsters and, and the like that, that are their main feed. And so the hope is with some cultural understanding and, and uh, the Hawaiians will uh, allow a reintroduction of a second population on the main islands. And uh, and another hopeful sign, I mean, the first time you go in the water, there's green sea turtles. When I first went there in the 1980s, it was a, a, a rare sight to see a, uh, a green sea turtle. Now they're on, they pebbling the beaches. They're, you know, pretty much on oh. every, I, I mean, there's a real growth of <laughs> green sea turtle. They actually, they were proposed to be taken off the endangered species list, but NOAA, the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, wisely decided that given the impacts of climate change, maybe we should keep the green sea turtles protected. But clearly they're, they're succeeding and coming back. Not so much with the hawks, Bill. We uh, went out on Maui and saw a nest that was being watched by these hawks, Bill, guardian people. Um, two hours earlier, they they had kids that called in and reported a nest hatching and so they'd gone down there and 50 little hatchlings had been returned to the ocean um, wow 50 yes the only tragedy is you know some of these activists and scientists don't understand the value of media um, the the woman who saved the the hatchlings knew she had an appointment with a journalist a couple of journalists at 1 p.m. When she got the call at 10 a.m., didn't think to call the reporters. So we we missed seeing all these baby turtles making their rush for the sea. Oh. But, um, but I guess it's like, you know, does does a hatchling get in the ocean even if there's not a journalist there? I guess so. Well, I think more worth research will be warranted on that. Yeah, we we don't know. You know, and they're saying the hawks bills are having. You know, I mean all. The marine reptiles, all the sea turtles, are having a hard time. But signs like the nene goose and the you know and the, the and the green sea turtle are hopeful. And I mean, what was amazing at this greenhouse up on the the volcano in uh, Maui, this greenhouse where where they're getting silver sword and all these native plants and out planting them back. And there was a Hawaiian mint that everybody thought had gone extinct. And then it was in 2009, they discovered some of it living in crevices up on the mountain, and they brought it into this 
greenhouse and they've they've outplanted you know they've they've grown seven thousand seeds and started planting them out and right nearby they have a uh, a whole enclosure full of uh, Hawaiian crows that kind of look like bulked out ravens and they're going to release a whole crowd of them back into the wild shortly so you know there's, mm. there's hope where we where we make the commitment next next fall is going to be the IUCN the International Union of Nature having its big meeting in Honolulu and they're the folks who identify endangered species and they're the theme of uh, their next meeting is is you know sort of the world at crossroads you know we're at this moment where we have to understand the complex ways in which uh, the natural world interacts and the impacts of decisions we make whether it's you know our energy decisions to burn fossil fuel or, or shift to clean energy or our, or our choices of habitat. There's a, a new mansion under construction right above this turtle nest we visited. Um, these are all decisions. I mean, Hawaii as a state has decided to be 100% clean energy by 2045. And that's really what the science tells us. We have to be off fossil fuels by mid-century if we have any chance of avoiding a, uh, you know, it's disastrous even today, the impacts, but it could be catastrophic. And, of course, again, it's it's one of those things where, you know, coal and oil were great energy systems for the 16th and the 19th century, but we're in the 21st. We, you know, we can do better, and, and if we do better, we'll probably expand the economy. This is, uh, this is the logic yeah. of, of sustainability, that the... The more we understand, the more we have to value what we don't understand, that we're part of a web of life that, you know, that our communities, both both human and, and wild, depend on healthy seas and uh, soils and, uh, and habitat. Yes. Well put. Well, you know, we're seeing, you know, more jobs with uh, green energy, and we're finding all kinds of ways that, People are, are getting involved and making a difference, and a fortunate yeah, few are actually getting a job out of it. I mean, even as we're talking right now, there's more jobs in solar than in coal. There's, you know, if we yeah. shut down coal tomorrow, we we continue to grow jobs. Um, you know, and jobs yeah, that don't give you black lung and kill you or collapse on top of you and trap you underground in a living grave. I mean, there's nothing nice about it. I've been on offshore oil platforms and, you know, I got lots of respect for the roughnecks and roustabouts I met out there, but it's kind of like, it feels like I'm on a whaling ship in the 1850s. You know, this is, mm-hmm. this is part of an energy history that we should respect, make it part of our maritime history, but move on. Good point. We're going to take we, a short break and be right back with David Helbarg. And when we come back, we'll talk about, uh, your plans for November 4th and how we're going to have a seaweed rally. What's a sea party? The sea party. Yeah, we'll like the tea, tea party, party with better okay. politics. Okay. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1 866 472 5788. Again, that's 1 866 472 5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back. And we're talking with David Helbarg of Blue Frontiers. And David has an international reputation, or certainly a national one, for pulling together every two years or so a Blue Vision Summit. And people and groups come from related to oceans and water come from all over the country uh, to Washington or to San Francisco but mostly to Washington to talk to our legislators about um, what they can do for the oceans. And so this has been a great process that you've done for quite a few cycles now. And out of that, out of the last Blue Vision um, gathering, came um, this interest in uh, doing something on November 4th called a a Sea Party. And I, I think that's a reason why you have so many organizations uh, part of your coalition now to promote that. So tell right, us I mean, about the, the party plan. For, yeah, yeah, we had on uh, in May. We had the largest citizen lobby in history for ocean conservation, and we we lobbied for a bill to stop pirate fishing, illegal fishing on the high seas. It's, it's one of the last bipartisan acts. 
And we also, um, you know, lobbied hard against proposed plans to uh, drill for new oil in the Arctic and uh, and along our populous Atlantic coast. This is just two of the stupidest ideas that have come down the pike in a long time. It's that you almost have to be a, a petro state like Russia or Saudi Arabia to even even move forward on those kind of plans because the Arctic's one of the most threatening frontier environments. Shell oil has finally pulled out. They hit a dry hole, and the CEO, yeah. the yeah, new it, CEO, wasn't time, interested but, anyway. Um, it was the legislators, the congressmen and their staffers were totally, well, I want to say blown away. That's a little overstatement. They were very impressed with um, the number of ocean advocates that, you had a hand in bringing up on the Hill. It was really impressive. Uh, and the training sessions did ahead of time really paid off because uh, those that pay attention were completely spot on and those that didn't um, were memorable for that. <laughs> but most of them were totally spot on, and uh, it, it's just it's remarkable. So uh, all of this bodes well for uh, your thoughts for November 4th. Now, tell us about November 4th. Well, November 4th is going to be sort of our launching uh, Sea Party Coalition press conference. We've invited uh, many of the same members of Congress to the House and the Senate, uh, the, at least those who have spoken out with us against this bad idea of new drilling. I mean, the science is in it, or, you know, scientific peer-reviewed studies say we need to leave 80% of the known oil reserves in the ground if we're going to avoid uh, the worst consequences of climate change. And and so to start looking for new resources, new oil off the Atlantic coast where there's already a multi-billion dollar economy and tourism and trade and and people spend, you know, look for it every year to their one week along the the outer banks or the eastern shore. Uh, That's crazy and crazier still to go drill for oil under ice in an environment where, you know, the, as I said, the, the commandant of the Coast Guard has said, we as a nation have no, no capacity to respond to an oil spill or disaster um, up in the Arctic. He told our Blue Vision Summit that the Arctic is going to be what he calls a black swan incident like the Titanic 105 years ago. And uh, mm-hmm. so what we should really be doing and what the Sea Party wants is to, to create a moratorium, no, no drilling in the Arctic, uh, Created, created as a uh, kind of protected zone like the Antarctic is. And for our eastern seaboard, we already have an ocean economy, and we need to, you know, protect the communities, both human and wild, that depend on healthy uh, east coast waters. And, and so on November 4th, we're going to uh, bring a, you know, my, my one disappointment last spring is it was too windy to inflate uh, Ms. Blue, our 90-foot inflatable uh, blue whale, and so she's coming back from North Carolina and uh, will be the backdrop for a press conference with uh, senators and Congress people and members of the coalition to say that it's just over a year out from the elections, and this election is going to be uh, in part about uh, restoring the blue in our red, white, and blue, about uh, no offshore oil, uh, clean energy, and uh, and we're going to go into the primary states, into the Carolinas and Florida and, and New York and New Jersey and California and, and and the Sea Party activists will be there and you know in our fish and polar bear costumes and will be asking tough questions of the candidates and and make sure that uh, the oceans aren't ignored because uh, 
Much of our economy depends on healthy oceans and many of our communities, especially in key primary states like South Carolina, um, dozens of uh, communities have already come out and, and voted coastal communities passed resolutions um, against offshore drilling and the and, and, oh, and oh. That's yeah, great. We, you know, it's, so it's if people want to make a difference in saving the ocean and stopping drilling of oil and gas in the Arctic or in the Atlantic Ocean American waters, they should, um, what they do? They should come to Washington, right, on November 4th and join right. with the Sea Party and um, hear some got a, yeah, congressmen join the and party. senators. Join the Sea Party Facebook page, uh, go to bluefront.org and, and find the links to the Sea Party uh, Coalition. Uh, we've got, you know, 60 major organizations from Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace and uh, Surf Riders and Waterkeepers to uh, uh, Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's uh, communities. Um, over 80 communities on the East Coast have passed these resolutions against drilling it. It, it, it's something that, uh, and we have the Kai activists up in in Oregon and Washington, and we'll have, you know, more of uh, more of common sense, you know, approaches. People mobilizing to uh, turn the tide and do good by our ocean, which does good by us. So, if community groups or church groups or school groups want to participate on November fourth in our Sea Party, they are most welcome, right? And they should go right. to. Uh, what should they go to for website? Um, we've just got the Sea Party Facebook page at this point. The, uh, they okay, should go the to the bluefront.org Bluefront website, and we have the links there to Sea uh, Party activism and ways that people can sign up uh, to become either individual members or, or have their churches or community groups or city councils or, or activist groups, whoever wants to join up and uh, you know, we'll we'll join up with some of our ocean champions from the House and Senate on November fourth, ten a.m. in front of the Capitol, and uh, and from there we'll be going into all the uh, election states and and you know holding all our candidates, uh, Democrats and Republicans, accountable to take a position because we're really unfortunately facing bipartisan greed. We're we're facing uh, yeah, it's not a partisan problem from, we're facing. This is enormous. Yeah, this, um, this is, is this is this is also about well, we're democracy. We're talking the climate. We're talking the atmosphere. We're talking the oceans. We're talking, you know, huge, huge realms. And 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 we're talking the sort of death grip of one dying industry, literally a dinosaur industry of coal and oil, trying to uh, hold hold back the the future of our not only our economy but our our planet. So, like like well, Pope says, it's a moral issue. It is, because we've been wounded by all this, you know, toxic um, stuff coming out of, you know, going into the atmosphere and getting forced into our oceans and increasing acidity. And uh, the, the worst uh, source is uh, the burning of fossil fuels. So this is and, very And when important. I was in Hawaii last week, uh, the other thing that was happening was uh, coral bleaching uh, statewide and and it's just been declared a global coral bleaching incident, and it bleaches when the water warms, and it's warmed uh, so badly three times in the last two decades that we've had global coral bleaching and the loss of our coral reefs linked to climate. So we have to do something. Yeah. We have to we have to get off these you know 16th, 19th century energy systems, um, build the wind turbines, and and you know. 
the addition is is no wind ever destroyed a bayou or a beach. So we got to go clean. No, but every community, every community now has problems. You know, you don't have to go to Hawaii to find problems from glo- from uh, too much carbon in the atmosphere. You know, um, that we've all got issues, and we're all looking for ways to lessen our carbon footprint. And this is one thing people can do: is they can join. Grab some friends, form a group, and come on down to Washington, November fourth. Join the Sea Party and uh, let right. your voice. Hash, our hashtag. It's hashtag Sea Party twenty sixteen. Excellent. Uh, say that again. Hashtag Sea Party twenty sixteen. Sea Party twenty sixteen. Yeah, get connected, uh, Dave. We're out of time, but it's really great talking with you about how together, by people working together, we can make a difference to slow the degradation, to slow the damaging, to, um, you know, that's, that we're all, you know, all forms of life, especially as humans, <laughs> are, are suffering. And, and um, so this is great. And, and it's great to be with you. Your, your radio show and your organization, Ocean River Institute, is, uh, you know, part of that, that upwelling that I... I'm hopeful will will in fact turn the tide and, and restore our living blue marble planet. Well said. We have past episodes of Lawyers Environmental Dialogues that feature David Helvard and Marco Pellegrino, the paddler that David talked to. Uh, David, once again, thank you. And thank you, uh, Rob. To, all you li- to all you listeners, thanks a lot for spending some time with us, and we wish you all healthy healthy oceans. And uh, look forward to our next program. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.